Over the past four weeks, we've been discussing the first discourse the Buddha gave after his enlightenment, that is, turning the wheel of the Dharma in motion. And in this discourse, he laid out the great framework of his teachings, teachings which he gave over the next 45 years, and that is the great structure of the Four Noble Truths. So I'd like to continue the discussion with the description, the Buddha's description, of the fourth of these Noble Truths. And this is uh, from the Sutta, from the Discourse. Just a little sidebar here. And he starts by saying, this, O bhikkhus. Remember, at that time, there weren't actually any monks. Because these were the five ascetics who he had been practicing with. And so bhikkhus, the word bhikkhu, really refers to anyone who is practicing for awakening. So when we hear this O bhikkhus, he's talking to us. It's good to listen with that in mind. <clears throat> this O bhikkhus is the noble truth of the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. It is simply the noble eightfold path, namely right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, <coughs> right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So last year I gave <coughs> a series of talks on each of these path factors in quite a bit of detail. And they were the concluding talks of the Satipatthana series. So tonight I'd like to offer, offer a more generalized synthesis of the Eightfold Path, not going into each one specifically, but in general uh, how they function and how we can practice them, not only in our intensive meditation practice, but also in our daily lives. The transformative power of the Buddha's teachings is precisely the great clarity with which he laid out the path that we need to follow for awakening. Now, it's fine to have a notion of the goal of liberation, but the challenge is, how do we get there? How do we actually practice in a way that liberates the mind? <laughs> And the greatness of these teachings is that the Buddha is so precise in his description of the path. <clears throat> the importance of this is highlighted in one very direct and pointed statement of the Buddhas. And this one, it really resonates. He says, when we practice, wisdom grows. And when we don't practice, it wanes. Well, this is something to take in. When we practice, wisdom grows. When we don't practice, <coughs> it wanes. So wisdom is not something we acquire and then we have. Rather, it's something, it's a force in the mind that's very dynamic within us and something we need to continually nurture and ripen in our lives. Otherwise, it simply becomes a memory of some past understanding. And we can easily fall back into our old habituated patterns. You know, as the 16th Karmapa said, we have to do what we know. So we learn some things and then we have to do it. We have to continually 
put them into practice. So this is not an easy task. You're probably familiar with the <coughs> example the Buddha gave. He talked of walking on this path to awakening as being more difficult than overcoming a thousand warriors a thousand different times, single-handedly. So just imagine, I mean, just picture the image. (laughs) You're surrounded by a thousand warriors, and you over somehow you manage to overcome them, and you have to do that a thousand different times. So if you have some difficulties in your practice, it's not surprising. (laughs) But as challenging as this is, the fourth noble truth actually shows us the way. Okay, how can we do? How can we accomplish such a daunting task? It's striking to me that in the words of the discourse where the Buddha says, this is the path. It is simply right understanding, right thought, and so on. And I love that phrase, it is simply. Because it is simple, but it's not easy. And so we need to understand that. So the eight steps on the path, this fourth noble truth, are often divided into three fields of training, you know, which you're familiar with. The practices of sila, or ethical conduct, the practices of samadhi, which are deepening meditative states, and the practice of panya, or wisdom. So I'll talk a little bit about the first of these now, the practice of sila, which is really the refinement, the strengthening, and the expression of our commitment to non-harming. So this is a bedrock principle of the path. And it's essential for developing the other path factors. To think that we can develop samadhi and develop wisdom without the foundation of sila, without the foundation of ethical conduct, is a huge misperception. Manindra described that idea as trying to row a boat across a river without untying the boat from the dock. You know, we can put all kinds of effort into it, but unless we untie the boat, it's not going anyplace. So the foundation of sila, this is, this is really the foundation of all the other steps. Our commitment to sila, to non-harming, draws strength and power from two sources. One, it draws power from the feeling of metta, of goodwill. You know, as metta or goodwill grows stronger within us, sila or moral integrity begins to follow quite naturally. You know, we, we no longer want to do things which cause harm to others or to ourselves because of this feeling of goodwill. Now, one of the things that distinguishes metta from the many other kinds of states that we call love, that is love with desire or love with attachment. And it is very helpful to begin to distinguish these in our experience. The particular characteristic of metta is that it has the capacity to embrace or to hold all beings. 
Other forms of love do not. You know, love with desire, love with attachment. Do we have love with attachment or desire for all beings? It's, it's not possible. You know, maybe for one or two, and certainly for a limited number of species. We don't have that kind of attachment in an all-embracing way. And yet it's precisely the feeling of metta, of goodwill, which is universal in that regard. And so it, it really what ma- it's what makes this feeling of metta so unique. It was expressed beautifully in a haiku, I think it was by Basho, where he said, in the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. You know, in, in, the, in the shade of metta, there's no such thing as a stranger. Because metta is simply that generosity of the heart that wishes well for beings. And it's not hard to see that as metta grows within us, the practice of sila becomes very spontaneous. So that's one source of our commitment to non-harming. The second source of this commitment is our growing understanding of the law of karma, knowing deeply that all of our actions, of our body actions, of speech actions, of mind, that all of our actions have consequences. What's interesting to me, you know, immersed as we all are in the teachings, we're familiar with this, we've heard this so many times. And we probably even accept to a large extent, yeah, we understand karma, actions have consequences. But how often does that understanding arise in the mind in the moment of our taking an action? Do we actually stop and reflect for a moment? So right here, with this understanding of the law of karma, which is part of the first step of the path, right, understanding, we can see the integrative nature of this Eightfold Path. We can see how right understanding of the law of karma will lead to right speech, right action, right livelihood, because we understand the consequences of our actions. So how can we look more specifically? How can we call this understanding to mind? First, we can look at what particular mind states arise as we perform different actions. What mind states are being cultivated even in the very simple activities of our lives? What's the mind state when we're eating? What's the mind states that are there when you're doing your yogi jobs? What are the mind states being cultivated when we're sitting and walking? And we can bring the same awareness and investigation and interest to our activities in the world. You know, when you're back in your daily lives, can we notice the quality of our minds when we're speaking? Or when we're choosing to spend our time in one way or another? In all of these activities, 
we are practicing something. There's some state of mind that is being practiced and cultivated. Do we stop and pay attention to what it is? You know, are we practicing desire or are we practicing metta, loving kindness? Are we practicing restlessness or are we practicing stillness? We can observe this in ourselves. So in following the Eightfold Path, there are some very simple and far-reaching practices that cultivate wholesome states of mind. So I'll just mention a few of them, but, but there are many. Right speech. You know, in our daily lives, here it's not very much of a problem, but in our daily lives we talk a lot. This is a major activity, a major use of our energy. So in the practice of right speech, we refrain from unskillful speech that comes from unskillful states of mind. We refrain from lying. We refrain from harsh speech, from gossip, from useless talk. But again, are we really undertaking this as a practice? Or do we hear these words, and, oh yeah, that's right, and then just carry on in our, our habitual ways? You know, do we stop and pause for a moment before we speak and really look, well, what's the motivation here? What is the quality of my heart and mind in this moment? Is it metta or is it something else? So the Buddha had a very, very simple framework uh, for understanding right speech. He said, if speech has five marks, it is well spoken, not badly spoken. What are these five marks? It is speech that is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving kindness. It would be quite a practice to call those five qualities to mind every time we speak, or even once every hundred times we speak. (laughs) You know, just to, to really have it in our minds, speech that is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving kindness. So this is a practice. This is part of the practice of the Eightfold Path. The practice of generosity. Now, this is the positive and very joyful expression of right thought. It's part of right thought, of thoughts of renunciation. What is generosity? Except a renunciation of something by way of giving. In the Jataka tales, you know, there are all these stories of the Bodhisattva in his lives just prior to uh, his awakening, there are so many stories of when the Bodhisattva would even give his life you know, in the service of others, to help others. And we may not, for ourselves, have reached quite this level of renunciation or generosity, but we can really practice it in smaller and more immediate ways So just a couple of practices that I've found helpful in this regard. The practice of generosity. 
for quite a few years now, what I try to do is when a thought of generosity arises in the mind, I try to make it a practice to act on it. Not to second-guess myself, not to entertain doubts, should I, shouldn't I. If the thought comes to give, to do it. And it has been a fantastic practice. I think generosity is so uplifting. And I've seen over many years now that both with the smaller acts and, and larger acts of generosity, I've never felt anything but happiness in having given. Um, so I'm reminded a little bit of Thich Nhat Hanh's statement, happiness is available, please help yourselves to it. Well, generosity is, is a big helping of happiness. And so we can undertake this. Might also practice generosity, and this, this is a little more difficult, when we're having difficulty with someone, you know, when we're some kind of struggle or things are not going well, it's very interesting, right in that situation, to give them something. And it's difficult because it's not what we're inclined to do at that moment. We're usually annoyed or irritated or angry or whatever. But if we can step back and just see the larger picture and say, oh, let me, let me see if I can change the relationship in some way. And I've been amazed at how just that simple act of generosity often transforms what had been a difficult relationship or interaction into something that is quite easeful. So it's powerful. These are powerful practices. They transform the quality of our lives. Don't underestimate the power of small acts. Because our lives are made up of just these small acts. So in exploring the law of karma as a, a force, you know, strengthening our commitment to non-harming, in addition to seeing the effects of our actions in our own mind, we can also train ourselves to observe the effects of our actions on others. So this requires a great attentiveness and honesty and clear seeing. You know, can we really notice carefully, well, what's the effect of my energy, what's the effect of my actions on the people around me? Just as a very basic practice of this, which again is part of right action, it's refraining from sexual misconduct. You know, those kinds of sexual activities that cause harm to ourselves or others. But as we know, we know so well you know, sexual desire is such a powerful force. It's often in the throes of it, it's often when we feel most alive. You know, and so this is, this is a powerful force in people's lives. And it's very easy to rationalize unskillful behavior you know, in the throes of this great energy. And one of my all-time favorite 
examples of translation from one language to another happened when Upandita was giving a talk about all this and going on and on about desire and sexual desire. He must have spoken for about 10 minutes or so. And the translator translated it in four words. So the translator said, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) (laughs) And it does. (laughs) And we all know it does. Because I'm sure everyone here has had experiences of that. So it takes care. We, we have to recognize, yeah, this is a powerful force. We need to be really mindful here. Are we using it? Are we employing it in a skillful way? So sometimes we harm others out of strong desire. Sometimes it's motivated by anger or resentment. Sometimes it's simply by not paying attention. So can we make it our practice to have our awareness include everyone around us, to really see (coughs) how our energy, our actions are affecting others. Do we live from a place of inclusion or a place of separation? Now, one of the most beautiful examples of a being who lives from a place of inclusion is, of course, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who just radiates and manifests this quality of loving care and compassion. I want to read something. This was in a recent edition of the Shambhala Sun. It was devoted a lot to the Dalai Lama. This was a piece written by Pico Eyre, who was a student and friend of His Holiness, traveled around with him for many years. So this is him writing about the Dalai Lama. He said, one of his greatest and most mysterious gifts is a kind of radar that alerts him to who in a crowded space is most in need of help. He'll walk into a jam-packed school auditorium and in the midst of greeting his hosts and shaking hands with everyone eager to say hello to him, making eye contact with each one, He'll notice through a kind of peripheral vision or intuition someone on crutches and walk instantly over to that person and offer a blessing, a reassuring touch. While going through an almost unimaginably busy schedule on a typical day of touring, he'll be hustled toward his next appointment and then suddenly, alone among a crowd of 50 or so, he'll veer off because he's seen a child in a wheelchair by herself and ignored over in one corner. Often he'll respond warmly to even the pushiest person trying to make contact with him on the street. And that is perhaps not only because he tries to live without aversion as well as without attachments, but because he senses that that person is in need in some form, lonely or unsure of himself, and the pushiness is just an expression of deep pain. The article just goes on and on. But it's so, such a beautiful way to live, you know, and to have somebody who embodies it so beautifully as an example of something we can practice. You know, we may not be quite at the Dalai Lama's level of inclusivity, but can we hold it as a value? Can we see 
yes, can I be in the world with that quality of sensitivity to everyone around us? And so we can also practice sila. It's watching the effect in our own mind, you know, of the actions we do, watching the effect on others. We can also practice the sila component of the Eightfold Path by reflecting on the long-range consequences of our actions. So often we're, we're caught up in just the immediacy of what we're doing. But very often something may feel good, you know, seem good in the moment, but actually in the long run is quite harmful. And we see this, you know, very clearly in various addictive behaviors. In the moment it feels good, but the long-term consequences can be very deleterious. Or something might not feel good in the moment. You know, a difficult sitting but be ultimately beneficial. So the pleasure or difficulty of the act is not the measure. We have to step back, we have to pause. Where is this act leading? You know, what's being cultivated here? Where is it going? And do I want to go there? This takes some mindfulness, it takes some attentiveness, it takes some willingness and practice of kind of an inner pause for a moment before we get involved and say, okay, is this skillful or is it unskillful? Is it beneficial or not? What states of mind are actually being cultivated through this action? So Ajahn Sumedho summed this up so beautifully when he said, you know, our practice is not to follow the heart, it's to train the heart. I think that's really good advice. So as we know, the practice of sila and these steps on the path, they bring a great beauty and happiness to our lives. You know, it brings the peace of non-remorse. We're not continually reflecting on unskillful things that we've done. And Very beautifully, it gives the gift of fearlessness and trust to everyone that's around us. Because we're saying by how we live, no one needs to fear us. We're not going to do anything that's harmful. The Buddha spoke of sila as being the true beauty of a person. And we know that. We respond when we're with people who have that deep level of integrity in their being. There is a beauty, there's there's an inner light. So we can understand all this both as being good in itself, the practice of sila, but also as being the precursor and the condition for the samadhi section of the Eightfold Path. And these steps include right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I think cultivating right effort is one of the most challenging aspects of the path. Really coming to understand in ourselves what exactly right effort is. Now it's so easy to fall into 
the difficulties on two ends of a spectrum. We can fall into kind of just a place of lethargy, complacency, apathy on one side, or we can fall into the difficulty of overstriving and expectation on the other. You know, and the Buddha used the well-known example of tuning the strings of a lute in terms of has to be neither too tight nor too loose to get the right sound. But the lesson here is that it's not a question of tuning the lute once and then it stays tuned. We need to continually be looking at the quality of our effort and continually retuning, recalibrating you know, how we're making effort in our practice. Are we too tight? So then we need to relax. Are we too relaxed? Then maybe we need to tighten up a little bit you know, and make more effort. Sometimes we need a very strong determination. And reflecting on how rare it is in the world to have this opportunity to practice. I mean, this is such an incredible privilege that we have. You know, to be able to practice in these surroundings, it's amazing. An amazing gift. So we, we can arouse that sense of strong determination to use the time well. We can come back again and again to, this is just an example, to a primary object, to the breath or to whatever it may be, if we find our mind is just very distracted and wandering a lot. I remember one time in my practice, I was just, just endless thoughts were happening. And, and one time I just got so fed up with it. I said, Joseph, do you want to think or get enlightened? I was just kind of laying down the gauntlet. What, what are you doing here? You know, and it helped. You know, sometimes we just have to take ourselves in hand, so to speak. And Okay, enough. This strong determination could maybe manifest as a stronger intention to be continuous, you know, to really practice seamlessly through the day. Seeing that every activity is equally important. It's, it's, it's just our life unfolding. And the practice is, are we aware or are we not aware? Or on the other side, if we find that we're struggling, you know, and we're just caught up in this expectation, desire and ambition, or whatever it may be, the judgment, the self-judgment, the aversion, we may need to settle back. We may need to relax more. Just opening in a much more easeful way, much more spacious way to whatever is happening, becoming more receptive, practicing some metta, practicing some compassion. So we tune, we tune our effort. I found that one of the greatest obstacles to finding just this right balance And maybe this is just peculiar to me, but probably at least some of you will share this. Where I saw this great attachment to being comfortable. You know, and this can really prevent us 
from extending ourselves, from playing at the edge of what we're willing to be with. And I saw how deep-rooted this attachment was. The night before I left to practice for the first time in Burma, you know, and I, a lot of my friends had already gone, and they you know, had told me stories of what it was like. And so the night before I left, I had this dream of arriving in the monastery, and the powers that be took away my zafu. <laughs> it was a total anxiety dream. <laughs> um, what's it going to be like there? You know, and of course, went there, and conditions were difficult, but also tremendously conducive to practice. So one of the images I really use a lot and appreciate a lot is my, uh, it's an image of the whole path and how we each have a comfort zone. You know, we each have a zone where we can easily be with what's happening. And then we practice and we come to the edges of the comfort zone, whether it's certain physical sensations or certain emotional states whatever it may be, where things get a little dicey. We're not so comfortable being with them. But through mindfulness, we look, okay, let me relax, let me open to that. And over time, we get more accepting of that, so our comfort zone increases. Then we come to a new edge where things become difficult, and we learn how to open to that, and a new edge, and a new edge. And my imagination of the Buddha's enlightenment is that there are no edges, there are no boundaries. And when there are no boundaries, there's no fear. And when there's no fear, there's peace. So every time we're practicing at an edge, that's a good thing, that's not a problem in practice. And it might actually be helpful to push the edges a little bit, to push the boundaries what is our comfort zone in practice? You know, and then, okay, can we extend it a little bit? Maybe it's sleeping a little less, or maybe it's sitting longer, or maybe it's you know, walking longer, whatever it may be, eating less. The key is for us to do this with interest, with a sense of exploration, and not from a place of should or guilt or self-judgment. And a phrase that inspires me in this regard is, is the phrase courageous effort, acknowledging that it does take courage to play at the edge, because this is precisely where our fears emerge. And it takes courage to be with what we're afraid of. Even if to somebody else it may seem like nothing, to us that's a meaningful boundary. And so to, to appreciate that it does take courage. So it might be helpful to reflect on what courage might mean for each of us, because it'll be different for each one of us. So just to reflect, well, what would courage mean for me in my practice? And then to extend ourselves a little bit, to explore that boundary. And to realize that sometimes we do have this quality of interest and willingness and invest, investigation. It's like we want to do it. 
because it inspires us. And at other times, we might not have the interest. We might not have the energy. So, uh, Saito Utejaniya, he, he really had some very good advice about this. He said, avoiding difficult situations or running away from them does not usually take much skill or effort. But doing so prevents you from testing your own limits and from growing. The ability to face difficulties can be crucial for your growth. However, if you are faced with a situation in which the difficulties are simply overwhelming, you should step back for the time being and wait until you have built up enough strength to deal with them skillfully. So it's always the balance. And this is the art of right effort. Okay, can we play at the edge? Can we push our limits? When is the time to do that? When is it too much? When is it overwhelming? When do we need to step back? This is our practice. That's why it's called practice. You know, we just play with this. So the cultivation of right effort and refining the balance of it is all in the service of the next step of the Eightfold Path, which is right mindfulness. And as you know, this is the strong, the faculty of the strong observing power of the mind, where, and this is how it's described in the text, where we come face to face with experience. And I really like that image. There's just, okay, the objects are arising and mindfulness comes face to face with it. So we see it clearly. Mindfulness is the union of a vivid clarity where there's just this very clear seeing of what's arising with an open receptivity. You know, so maybe an image, and don't, don't, don't hold this image too firmly, but just as an indication of this quality, it would be like a perfect mirror. You know, that reflects everything perfectly, vividly, is receptively, because it's, it's just its nature to reflect. So we can understand the development of mindfulness as a three-step process. And it might be helpful to really uh, understand each of these steps. So the first step in mindfulness is just to get a general impression of what it is that's going on. You know, maybe it's just a feeling of discomfort someplace in the body. Maybe it's a mood, a background mood. Maybe it's a strong emotion. So the first step is just, just that general impression, oh yeah, this is going on. The second step is an interesting one because it highlights the role that perception has in the development of mindfulness. And perception is the factor which recognizes specifically what the object is. Oh, this discomfort is tension. Or oh, this mood is calm. You know, this emotion is anger. So that's perception which is recognizing it. So perception, by recognizing it and naming it, it's like it puts a frame around the experience. Just like we put a frame around a picture, 
and the frame helps focus our attention, the recognition of perception, the naming of what it is, whether with an actual mental note or not, it can be a silent recognition, but the actual recognition frames the experience for a deeper investigation. So that's the third step in the development of mindfulness. (coughs) The first is just the general impression of what's arisen. The second is the recognition, the framing of it. And then the third is coming in closer to look at the details. Okay, what actually is going on? You know, we might, in this more closer examination, we might see the changing momentary nature of the sensations in the body. Or we might see all the component parts of an emotion. You know, what we call anger or happiness. We begin to see, yeah, there's sensations and there are thoughts and there are images and there's a mental tone. So first the general impression, then the framing of recognition, and then the careful looking. Being aware of this three-step process can remind us to appreciate the value of each one and then how each step leads to the next. Now, sometimes we might think that being mindful of everything that's going on is just too much. It's just overwhelming. How could I possibly be mindful of everything that's arising? We can keep in mind two important understandings. The first is that there are only six things to be aware of. There's sights and sounds and smells and tastes and bodily sensations and mind objects. Does anybody experience something else? I mean, it's quite amazing. You know, we, we make our minds and our lives so complicated, but when you come right down to it, when you're really looking at moment after moment what's happening, it's just one of six things. A sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation of some kind, or something arising in the mind. So what we are... This this metaphor may get a little confused, but what we are is a six-piece chamber orchestra. You know, it's just these six instruments playing together. Can we sit back and and simply enjoy the music? Enjoy, Enjoy the performance. Okay, so that's the one understanding that helps simplify everything. The second understanding is that we learn to recognize awareness or mindfulness as an easeful and natural state of mind. And again, uh, Sada Otejaniya speaks to this. He says, it is not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. For this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. You do not need strong effort to be mindful. When we are present, we naturally become aware of what is happening. Simply reminding yourself to be in the present moment is all the effort you need. So I think that's, it's good to remember that, you know, especially if we're 
feeling overwhelmed or struggling. It's simple. It's easy. Okay, we'll just do a, a, a simple experiment right now. If you just move your arm and feel it, feel the movement. Is that hard to feel the movement? <laughs> it's as simple and natural as can be. It's moving and we're feeling it. You can dance with it. You can, and you're just feeling, you're feeling whatever's happening. It's that simple. Mindfulness is that simple. So as you're moving through the day, simply to feel, and, and the body is such a good vehicle for developing mindfulness because it's so tangible, it's so obvious. We can just settle back, relax into the feeling of the body as it engages in various activities. Okay, so mindfulness has one other distinctive feature which is often overlooked. And that is, it's mindfulness that discerns what is wholesome and what is unwholesome in our minds. So this is the more active, discerning aspect of sati, or mindfulness. And it obviously can only function when we do come face to face with the object, when we're right there. If we're distracted, and we're not seeing clearly what's arising, then there'll be no possibility of discerning, is this skillful, is it unskillful? So mindfulness plays a very critical role in this essential discernment. So through mindfulness, we open to and we recognize and we experience the pleasant things that come, the unpleasant things, the neutral things. And we also see all of the attitudes in our minds about this. Are we attached to the pleasant? Do we have aversion to the unpleasant? Are we open? Are we equanimous? Is there wisdom? Mindfulness really sees our mind state in relationship to everything that's happening. And it's just this power of mindfulness which makes possible what are called the teachings of all the Buddhas. So this, this, is, this is from the Dhammapada. The teachings of all the Buddhas, what are they? Refraining from what is unwholesome, cultivating the good, purifying the mind. It's mindfulness which makes possible the accomplishment of this teaching of all the Buddhas because it discerns what is unwholesome, it discerns what is good. So if ever, you know, as you're going through the day or your time here, and this, this can happen, you know, you're just bogged down in some way and you just thought, what am I doing here? What's going on? You can recall to your mind these teachings. What are you doing here? It's very simple. Letting go of the unwholesome, cultivating the good, purifying the mind. That's what we're all doing individually, and that's how we're supporting each other. So I want to read... uh, This is a little tribute to mindfulness as a path factor by Nyoshal Kenrinpoche, who was 
one of the great Dzogchen masters uh, of the last century. He wrote, mindfulness is the root of dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. And so... this very, in some way, humble state of mind, of mindfulness, has this tremendous power. Why it's a central part of the path. So the third factor in the samadhi group of the Eightfold Path is concentration itself. And this is undistracted steadiness of mind. And this undistracted steadiness of mind comes through a continuity of mindfulness. It's precisely being mindful in a continuous fashion, whether it's on changing objects or a single object. But the continuity of mindfulness is what creates a stable concentration. And one of the great lessons which took me a long time to learn in the practice of concentration, but has been so helpful, is that concentration is most easily facilitated by and supported by states of calm and relaxation rather than from wanting or trying to hold on to the object. Sometimes we think, oh, in order to concentrate, I just have to hold on tight to the breath or whatever it is. And that actually is a hindrance to concentration. What we need to do is learn how to relax. It's, It's more a question of letting go and being still in the letting go than holding on. So it would be very helpful as you're practicing, whether it's with the breath or anything else, to frequently check the attitude in your mind. Okay, as you're with the breath or or any object, what's the attitude? Is there a grasping? Is there a leaning into it? Is it relaxed? Is there this letting go? And very often, as I've mentioned before and you've probably seen, very often, just in the moment of asking the question, what's the attitude? You don't even really need an answer. Just in the moment of asking the question, very often, what's the attitude? Just by asking the question, we often feel the mind letting go of perhaps an unnoticed identification, you know, with some grasping or wanting or expectation. And we can feel that momentary relaxation 
pay attention to that, you know, and see if you can then practice more from that space of relaxed awareness, not wanting, not reaching out, not holding on. And in that way, the concentration deepens in a very easeful way. One other element of the practice of concentration, which I found really helpful, is at times to give more emphasis to the knowing aspect than to the object. You know, both are always present. There's always knowing an object, moment after moment. So it's a question of foreground, background. In any moment, which of those two aspects is in the foreground of our attention? And usually it's the object, because the object is more tangible. You know, the breath, a sensation, even a thought or an emotion, more noticeable than the knowing, than the awareness. But in the development of concentration, I found that if it feels like there's some kind of struggle going on, or even, even in very subtle ways, you know, it just feels a little tense or tight, Shifting that foreground background is very helpful and dropping back into the knowing more, just into the awareness, letting go of so much attention on the object and resting in the knowing, it helps to find that right balance and finding a place of ease. We begin to realize from that place of simply knowing, just the awareness, emphasizing that aspect as the breath is coming in and out, we realize that the breath doesn't need our help. It's happening all by itself. And we can trust that. The body knows how to breathe. And so we relax. The practice of concentration also reveals deeply habituated patterns of restlessness. Now, we're all familiar with restlessness of the body. You know, you're sitting and sometimes it's just so, the body's so agitated, it feels like it can hardly sit still. But there are much more subtle aspects of restlessness in the mind. Now, just to begin to notice these subtle slipping off the object, even just getting caught up in a thought for a moment or two, just that, that movement of the mind, slipping off the object, coming back, slipping off, coming back. In seeing this clearly, and it's interesting to see, and don't, don't you know, be judgmental about this, because restlessness as a defilement of mind is not uprooted until one is an arhant. It's one of the last of the kalesas to be purified. So this is going to be around for a while, but knowing that, uh, for me, it inspires a lot of interest. Okay, I want to understand this. And every time I really see this restlessness, this subtle movement of unsteadiness, just the mind going off and back on, I feel, oh yeah, good. I, I'm working on arhanship now. You know, so it inspires an interest. It inspires an attentiveness. So in these three samadhi factors of the path the well-developed, 
they become a powerful force of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, they become a powerful force for the arising and the strengthening of the wisdom section of the path, which is right understanding. And given the time, we'll go into that next week. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.